Minusery Theater presenting Lerner and Lowe's My Fair Lady at the Blue Hill Town Hall Theater, showing 13th, 14th, 15th, 20th, 21st, and 22nd of August. Tickets available at the door or at the Blue Hill Library. More information at 374-5556 or www.newsurytheater.org. Are you a WERU member? Would you be willing to tell other listeners why you support community radio and why they should become WERU members too? We are currently looking for members to add their voices to the voice of many voices by calling in and recording testimonials on a special phone number, 1-888-988-9378. That's 1-888-988-WERU. Your positive messages about WERU may be used on the air during our upcoming summer pledge drive August 15th through the 23rd. We'd love to have your voice encouraging your radio friends and neighbors to become WERU members and support the station. Be creative, read a poem, sing, or just tell us straight up why you donate to the station. To record your voice in support of WERU, call 1-888-988-WERU. Just give your first name and the town you are calling from, then make your statement. That's 1-888-988-WERU. Thank you. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation for 25 years partnering with donors and nonprofits in communities statewide to strengthen Maine through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, when it comes to protecting water quality and wetlands and some other resources, there's a shared responsibility among landowners, local towns, and the state. Those responsibilities are set out in local laws called shoreland zoning, Yes, and uh, those are backed up by state statutes um, that were created back in the 1970s. In 2006, changes in state law have slightly readjusted those roles, but the goals remain the same. And we're going to be looking at the partnership between towns and the state to protect water and wetlands and what landowners should know as they develop their properties. Um, joining us here in the studio, we're happy to welcome back Tom Martin of the Hancock County Planning Commission. Welcome to you, Tom. Thank you, Ron. I'm very pleased to be here again. And Stephanie McLacken is uh, with the Maine Department of Environmental Protection um, up in Bangor, and she's with us by phone. Welcome to you, Stephanie. Hi, Ron. Hi, Tom. Glad to be here. Great. Perhaps each of you could provide a little bit of background, uh, starting with you, Stephanie, about the organization you work for and how you came to, to uh, uh, your present role. The Department of Environmental Protection is the state agency that helps the Maine as a state protect its natural resources. The shoreland zoning unit is within the land division of the department 
And the shoreland zoning unit is charged by the legislature to help uh, municipalities administer and enforce their shoreland zoning ordinances. I was working in the land division in the Augusta region before I came to work in the Bangor region, and now I cover northern and eastern Maine municipalities in the shoreland zoning unit. And how did you get interested in this work in general? How, what was your, your background? My background is environmental policy. I graduated from the Unity College, and um, my interest in zoning or land use regulation in general is the idea that we can simultaneously protect our natural resources and enjoy them, that humans do not have to be completely separated from the natural environment. Great. Great. Well, Tom, how about you? Um, tell us a little bit about the Hancock County Planning Commission, one of several um, similar organizations throughout the state, and uh, how you got interested in this work. Okay, the Hancock County Planning Commission serves all of uh, Hancock County plus the town of Ho and Knox County. We are basically a creature of municipal governments and that municipal governments appoint members to our board of directors, and we provide services to planning boards, select boards, and other town-sponsored groups so that our role in terms of sh shoreline zoning really is to help towns deal with the changes in the ordinances that we'll be discussing. My interest has really come about from being at this job, the executive director of the Planning Commission for 19 years. I've seen that shoreline issues are very important to towns because there are many adjustments that uh, are needed to the land use ordinances, plus there are questions on protecting uh, waterfront uses, protecting uh, uh, wildlife habitat, and overall preserving water quality. My own personal interest comes from being in the regional planning business for 30 years in various parts of Maine and New Hampshire, and also just a commitment to uh, trying to, as Stephanie was saying, protect and enjoy the environment, manage sprawl, and assure a prosperous future for everybody in Hancock County. Oh, that's great. Um, and I can remind listeners that this is a call-in show, and um, you're welcome to call in at any time if you've got um, things to share about uh, how we protect water and wetlands through shoreland zoning. Uh, give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. one 625 Well, water is really um, so important to uh, us as, as human beings. Um, um, it's kind of a essential. We're made up of, of uh, water in, in many ways, um, and we use water. Um, when we use land, sometimes there's an interface between water and land, and, and that interface is, is a delicate one. Um, Stephanie, maybe you can start by talking about that zone um, between kind of the dry land and water, whether that water is, is uh, salt water or fresh water. You are very correct that our impact on the land and the way we use it and enjoy it does impact the water body adjacent to such land. Um, and in order to basically um, use zoning as a way to limit that impact on the water resources, the Shoreland Zoning Act was implemented to protect land areas that are within 250 feet of great ponds and rivers, 250 feet from the upland edge of freshwater and coastal wetlands, and 75 feet from streams. Um, and each of these resources are defined in the local shoreland zoning ordinance as well as the Shoreland Zoning Act. 
So, um, but take us back a little bit. What, what are some of the, um, I will call them uh, ecological services, <laughs> if you will, that water plays in both our lives as humans and the kind of the life of the planet, the, the, the ecology? Um, what, I, what is this zone about, this kind of zone between um, uh, dry land and, and, and wet? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times when we think about the transition from land to water, we initially think of wetland areas. It's land, it has vegetation, but it's saturated with water for a duration of time. Um, we sometimes call these areas marshes or bogs or heaths, or you know, we have a variety of different names for wetland areas. Wetlands themselves provide many different um, assets for our communities. Um, Maybe the largest is flooding control. Wetlands act as a sponge, soaking up a lot of the runoff rain from our storms and holding that water and all of the nutrients and pollutants that might have been carried with that stormwater in the wetland. So the wetland also acts as a filtration system for that water before it is slowly released into our rivers and ponds and eventually the ocean. So it's really cleaning up the water as well as storing it. Correct. Mm. And how about um, how um, wildlife? When when I think of, of wetlands, I sometimes think of mosquitoes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there must be mosquitoes, but there are other things happening um, besides um, those level of, of uh, animals. Absolutely. If you ask birders or hunters, when they think of a wetland, they're going to be thinking of the bird species that they enjoy when they are in these areas. Um, and Inland Fisheries and Wildlife is another state agency who is charged with protecting these wildlife species. Um, it's an asset of Maine and our you know, municipal communities um, that we want to preserve for future generations. And so shoreland zoning also helps um, provide buffers from our development and uses to these species, but still allow us also access to these wetland areas to enjoy the species. Um, and so Wetlands do provide great habitat for even large animals, you know, such as our bird species, even our moose. Mm, mm. So, um, um, Stephanie, maybe you and Tom can both discuss how these kinds of laws came about, because we we probably all always been aware. Um, I can, you know, think back going to some archaeological um, digs and, and uh, early peoples in, in Scotland, for instance, um, they were careful to make sure their waste wasn't mixed in with um, where they were living. So even early peoples knew about this. What are some kind of the modern trends that led to shoreland zoning? Um, either Tom, you got um, kind of a, a history of, of why we're concerned about this and what led to these, these kinds of laws? Well, very briefly, I think it started with the uh, realization that we were we were polluting our water resources. I mean, a few generations ago, people thought nothing about having straight pipes going into the ocean for untreated uh, sewage discharge. People uh, thought nothing about dumping their uh, their waste in streams, and we've had a gradual evolution over the years as we became more environmentally aware of the consequences. I mean, you just look at the example uh, on a broad statewide basis of the Androscoggin River. And I remember as a kid when we had a camp we used to rent near uh, Rumford. And when the wind blew in the wrong direction, it reeked a high heaven. If we went into Rumford for shopping, we had to hold our noses. So there was kind of that sense that we it was called the smell of money, hmm. not really looking at the long-term impact on the environment. 
and there's been a gradual transition away from that toward more of a balance between assuring prosperity, as I mentioned a moment ago, and trying to preserve water quality and other natural resources. So I suppose that early on, um, the impact um, of a few people living on the ocean or on a lake um, or on a river um, and human activities didn't um, impact so much um, those water resources, those wetland resources. But as people became more concentrated, um, those impacts became clearer. Is that right? I think that's part of it. And I, but I think if you look at uh, the layout of towns that historically, towns, at least in the late 19th century, early 20th century, did not really look toward the river. They looked away from the river because the rivers were polluted mm, and they, they weren't pleasant places to look. I mean, you can read stories about Bangor and how polluted the Penobscot River used to be. Mm. So we began to, to uh, take note of these things, and uh, Tom, you corrected me. I thought the first Earth Day was in 1969. I do remember 1969, um, but you said it was 1970 that the first yes. uh, Clean Water Act came along, and that was national legislation that began to, to recognize these trends and the need to take care of the resources even as we use them. Is that right? Yes. Yep. And Stephanie, what would you um, add to that in terms of the evolution of, of uh, shoreland zoning in Maine? Um, there was, there was uh, some response. Maine was an early leader, uh, perhaps because Senator Muskie was so influential at the Washington level and had been governor, um, thinking about these kinds of resources and, and then taking action through the legislative process. Sure. Pollution was a big driving force um, for us to come up with regulations, um, federal and state level, um, that would help us clean up our water bodies um, so that they could, again, be enjoyed on a recreational basis, um, even for livelihood, fishing comes to mind. Um, Maine was also unique in that when it looked at its water resources, it saw more than just a recreational use. It saw commercial fisheries and maritime as, you know, a livelihood that needed protecting from the encroachment of other types of development. Um, it saw its wildlife and, the, you know, the resource that that provided for the state and how the water bodies were a part of that entire ecosystem and needed to be protected for that reason. Mm. The evolution of it um, has progressed, and, you know, Maine has cleaned up its waters immensely. Right now, our number one pollution to our water bodies is actually soil. And because soil is so easily eroded and is carried very easily in water, suspended particles, it also binds with phosphorus and other nutrients that when they enter our lakes end up feeding algae, which creates these green blooms. Um, and nobody wants to swim in algae. It's very difficult to fish in algae. The algae takes up a lot of the light sources and it changes the whole ecosystem of the lakes. Um, and this basically also, it affects our property values on the shorefront. Who mm. wants to live on a lake that's green all the way through the summer? So I hear you saying, both you and Tom, saying that early laws were thinking about um, easy forms of pollution to, to deal with, the things that we were actually, uh, chemicals perhaps. Exactly, um, point um, source point sources um, it might be human um, waste, uh, sewage waste that I'm thinking of, um, and uh, chemicals through industrial processes. What you're saying now, we've, we've cleaned up some of those sources. We've taken care that, that uh, towns um, uh, you know, you know, try to, to treat waste and, 
and discharge uh, cl clean water to into the soils, um, not into the to, to water. Um, but we're seeing that um, the human use of land then creates erosion and that those soil particles get into um, our fresh water and, and salt water. Is that right? Yes, that's yeah. very right. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about um, uh, shoreland zoning. What does that mean? We'll start with Tom um, to give us a, a, just a, a real quick review of what zoning is. That's um, sometimes uh, got a bad connotation. Um, we live in a state and perhaps in a nation where um, perhaps coming out of our, our, um, our British heritage, um, European heritage, where the land was owned by the king or the crown, and and once we got to um, these shores, um, we of course took it away from the native peoples who were living there. But we wanted this kind of sense of freedom. Um, we can do with with the land what we want. But we began um, probably in the what the late 19th century, early 20th century, to begin be begin thinking about how to to manage um, human use and. Tell us a little bit about zoning uh, well, as a concept. The history of zoning, originally it was instituted to preserve property values because the famous story is nobody wants to live next door to a pig farm. Mm. And it's kind of evolved. It basically is saying what uses are permitted in what zone. Different parts of town have different standards because they're different uh, makeup of the neighborhood, different environmental features and the like. But I really look at zoning as not so much that thou shall not do this, is if you do this, it needs to be done under certain conditions hmm. to mitigate the impacts. I mean, for example, if you're going to build a uh, home in the shoreline, and there was a case in the news just quite recently about somebody, I believe it was in the town of Lincoln, who did excessive tree cutting. Probably Stephanie could comment about that more than I could. Uh, the idea is, okay, you can build in the shoreland, but you have to, as Stephanie was saying, take measures to avoid excessive soil erosion. And one of the ways you do that is to have a, uh, have a tree buffer. Or if you're looking outside of the shoreland, okay, you want to open up a, uh, a mini-mart, that's fine, but you just be sure that you have access to the highway safely so cars aren't turning willy-nilly. Hmm. So it's really more a way of trying to uh, balance private property rights against public safety, health, and uh, welfare. Mm -hmm. Stephanie, what would you add to that in terms of, of the concept of, of zoning? And then we'll talk specifically about shoreland zoning. Yeah, zoning is about balancing public safety and common resources with the individual's right to use those resources and develop their land. So that, that sense that the old story that um, your freedom stops at the end of my nose <laughs> in terms of, of uh, human interaction, um, uh, that applies to the, to the land so that we're not creating nuisances for other people who um, might li live next door or um, come to recreate next door. Exactly. Um, I'll just remind listeners that they can participate in this conversation here on Talk of the Towns on WERU. Um, the f phone-in numbers are one 866 Six two five nine three seven eight or locally four six nine zero five zero zero, and in the studio I'm glad to have Tom Martin of the Hancock County Planning Commission um, with us, and uh, by phone Stephanie McLacken of the Maine Department of Environmental Protection, and she's up in the Bangor office. So um, Stephanie, starting with you, um, what's shoreland zoning? Remind us what it is. Sure, um, I had mentioned how the lands are zoned. Um, it's those two hundred and fifty feet from ponds, rivers, and wetlands, and 75 feet from streams. And the purposes of shoreland zoning 
um, kind of spur off of that idea that zoning is a balance between public safety and access to common resources and an individual's right to use those resources. The purposes of shoreland zoning include the idea of protecting our community's traditions, such as commercial fisheries of maritime activities, protecting our buildings from flooding, protecting habitat and wetland areas for enjoyment and hunting and access, conserving our community's character, such as access to water, its natural beauty and open space. What we see when we're on a lake and look to the shore in Maine is different than what we see on a lake and look to the shore in another state. Controlling these threats to our community's characters and traditions is what the shoreland zoning standards do. Um, they provide a way to protect against water pollution, prevent erosion and sedimentation to our water bodies and wetlands, and control our building sites so that we don't build in floodplain areas or other areas that are inappropriate and create a threat to the building and the natural resource. When I, when I walk outside, um, I uh, see different characters, characterizations of land, and, and yet you describe a zone that's pretty rigid, um, you know, a number of feet. What was the science behind those things, or was that a political compromise? It was probably both. Uh-huh. Um, surely we had scientific evidence to base where lands most impact water bodies. Um, the habitat areas were definitely a compromise politically. Um, biologists wanted 500 feet, even 1,000 feet from the shoreline, um, and obviously that would create more nonconformances um, that would not be easily accepted by landowners. So 250 was the compromise, which was the original shoreland zone from the 1970s and 1989 when it was updated. And, and do we have a sense of how that, that those earlier um, uh, versions worked, um, the 1970s versions? Um, how did they work to protect our, our uh, wetlands and water resources? Stephanie? Yes, generally they did work. Um, and they provided us the basically first step in the right direction to recovering our water bodies and getting the point sources controlled. Um, in 1989, more evidence was provided um, that certain wildlife habitats needed protected for Maine's wildlife resources. Um, and the setbacks were also changed in 1989 from 75 feet from a, um, 75 feet to 100 feet in some cases. Um, so basically we were taking another step forward in protecting against the non-point source pollutions that we've come to realize are our greatest threat right now to our water bodies. Well, the next part of the story that I'm trying to uh, unfold here is the is the dual responsibility between the state's role um, and the the town role in enforcing and carrying out these these ordinances. Stephanie, we'll start with you and get some comments from Tom. What's what's the nature of this partnership? Sure, the state legislature passed the mandatory shoreland zoning act, which requires municipalities to adopt shoreland zoning ordinances. The legislature also realized that most municipalities didn't have the expertise to get started on that. So they charged the Department of Environmental Protection with coming up with guidelines for adopting such ordinances. And so the Shoreland Zoning Unit um, has come up with guidelines, and these guidelines are basically the starting point for municipalities and how to craft a shoreland zoning ordinance. And then we have three staff um, in the state that help municipalities along with the drafting process of these ordinances, the administration once they're adopted and enforcement of the standards. 
Great. And Tom, um, your role as a, as a planning commission, um, you help towns with all sorts of different ordinances, and, and uh, there are probably still towns, um, I don't say still, but there are towns that don't have anything that um, manages land use except shoreland zoning. Is that the case? That is certainly the case. Uh, I, I don't have the numbers to the tip yeah. of my fingers, but yeah. I would say probably uh, of the 38 towns in our region, 13 have town-wide zoning is my recollection. And uh, the shoreland zoning uh, standards that Stephanie refers to, we've worked a lot with towns in terms of adapting them to each town while also maintaining the minimum state standards because we cannot, a town cannot be less restrictive than the state. It may be more restrictive. But generally speaking, towns tend to follow the state standards. So, um, Tom, tell us ab about the, the creation of those ordinances um, in general at the town level. What, what's the process that towns go through to think about ordinances is in general and then specifically shoreland um, zoning? Well, ordinances. ordinances in general is usually preceded by a comprehensive plan which takes a look at where the town is going, where the town's been, what are the priorities. So it's more trying to, first of all, develop a vision of what you want for the town, then you translate that into implementation measures, which are not solely zoning. Uh -huh. I uh -huh. won't get into all the others, but for example, transportation improvements, public facilities, where you invest in public facilities, uh, where you invest in uh, infrastructure, ma maintaining the roads, what roads have priority, and the like. But land use, what land uses you allow where. And then shoreland zoning comes into a more specific because, as I said, that's largely a state-mandated uh, uh, procedure th that is there. But I think some towns have found it extremely useful. Share, uh, uh, excuse me, Stephanie had mentioned the commercial fisheries maritime activities, and the purpose of that zone is to assure that traditional maritime uses, such as uh, docking for lobster boats and other fishing operations, are preserved, so they're not bitted out using the term bitted out, that there's such a demand for uh, residential uses in the shore that the town doesn't lose at one of its important fishing piers to condominiums. Mm. So I'm going to come back to the, the process of uh, creating a, a local ordinance, whether it's a, a general ordinance or a shoreland zoning, in just a moment. But we do have a caller. You can call as well if you're listening this morning, one 625 But we do have a caller. Uh, please give us uh, perhaps your first name and where you're calling from and go ahead with your question or comment. Good morning. This is Yo and in Tremont. And I'm calling to ask about the intent of the shoreland zoning legislation on the state level. And now I understand from your guests that one of the intents is to protect habitat, specifically uh, wetlands. And another one of the intents is um, soil retention. And I'm wondering if, if there's another intent that's behind these uh, ordinances, specifically um, is there some kind of a developmental intent? Is there some kind of an aesthetic intent or, or something other than the environmental factors we discussed? Okay, great. We'll see if we can get some responses um, first from Stephanie, um, who's with the Department of Environmental Protection, and then perhaps from Tom Martin. So um, maybe our caller has left the line, but um, are there other intents um, as well as um, these environmental um, intents? Yes, there are, and I had mentioned them 
just briefly that part of our community assets um, are historical buildings, um, that character of our surrounding areas, um, and we do try to control building sites to basically protect such buildings in the future. Um, placement of structures and land uses so that we're um, protecting the character of our communities as well as the environment. Um, conserving shore cover is not just about the environment, but also the aesthetic value and character of the main shoreline. Um, when we think of the main shoreline, you know, we think of a wooded rural area. We're not thinking of the populated um, dock every two feet kind of shoreline. Okay, great. And, and uh, the, again, the caller has left the, um, the, the phone, but if uh, there are further questions, uh, please give us a call back. The number is one eight six six. Six two five nine three seven eight. Tom, back to the, the creation. I understand that um, if a town has a select board um, or a planning board, each of them might have a role in creating the ordinance and then bringing it to a town vote. Is that right? Yes, uh, it is. There's the, the whole process. The way we do it is usually we meet with the planning board for several workshops and presenting the proposed language changes because the towns already have shoreline zoning make the changes. We keep Stephanie in the loop, emailing her copies of the proposed changes. Also, the maps are very important. Stephanie can tell tell you a little bit about the problems we've had with finding the, the right maps for the moderate and high-value wetlands that now have to uh, replace the old maps, but that's been greatly facilitated by the provision of geographic information system or computer mapping. And then the, a public hearing is required, and then a town meeting vote is required. Mm. And um, the, what, what are some of the, the, you've probably gone to some of those public hearings, I'm sure, and, and some of those town um, meeting votes. What are some of the issues that come up? What are, what are people concerned about um, that um, they have questions about? Well, I think one of the issues that's come up in the past year is the accuracy of the new maps mm. that show the uh, wetlands, high and moderate value wetlands uh, that have to be protected. And we had a state representative, Jim Schatz, uh, from Blue Hill, who, who raised those in a, in a very effective way, didn't he? Okay. Stephanie, any comment on, on, the, on the use of the maps as we, as we um, talk about this? Yeah, definitely. Um, part of using new technology for, you know, getting information out about moderate and high-value wetlands or any other kind of data um, is, you know, finding out about the glitches along the way. In 2006, when Inland Fishers and Wildlife did the initial updates or mailed out the uh, maps for the new moderate and high-value rated wetlands, new ratings for these wetlands, um, the maps were determined to rate wetlands associated with streams, very narrow wetlands that were not actually the intent of um, for the inland waterfowl wading bird habitat protection. So with that concern raised, Inland Fisheries and Wildlife went through a redrafting process of those maps, went to each town and did um, a look at the aerial photography and the habitats and used a more basically human eye on it rather than just having the GIS model produce the habitat areas. So the 2008 data is much more accurate um, and it's also, it makes most towns more happy because in most cases, fewer wetlands are rated moderate or high value on the 2008 maps than on the 2006 maps. So it sounds like um, this rating system is fairly important to the, to the new, um, the update of the shoreland zoning. Could you just comment, Stephanie, about these different uh, ratings? Yes. Um, 
wetlands are rated for their value for habitat on wildlife. And since 1974, we have put a provision in shoreland zoning ordinances that would protect wetlands that are rated moderate or high value as resource protection districts. In 2006 is when we did the initial update on those ratings. And we were able to do that with new technology such as the GIS computer system that gave us aerial photography of these wetlands all the way from the 70s to 2007. Um, so these were, you know, a great asset to creating more accurate ratings on these wetlands so that we could ensure the correct wetlands are being protected. Uh, so you've introduced a new term um, listeners might be interested in. I'll list our phone numbers one time, more time, one 625 9378 Give us a call if you'd like. We're talking about protecting water and wetlands through shoreland zoning, and our guests are Stephanie McLacken of the Maine Department of Environmental Protection up in Bangor. She's with us by phone, and Tom Martin is here with the Hancock County Planning Commission. Stephanie, you've just introduced the, n- the notion of resource protection, so that seems to be um, a more restrictive zone that's that's used because of the the nature of the resources? That's correct. I had described where the shoreland zone is. Within the zone, we give the areas a district designation. Um, The default district designation is the limited residential district that allows residential and recreational uses. If an area is not highly developed and it doesn't meet the criteria for resource protection, it would be limited residential. The resource protection district is a more sensitive area um, for one of many reasons, and the very first reason would be moderate and high-value wetlands that are associated with inland waterfowl and wading bird habitat. Okay, good. We'll come back now to to Tom's story about helping towns through this process. He listed the maps as one concern. Were there other concerns that that you've heard about as people talk about it? Are they are people still concerned about the the notion of of using shoreland zoning as a as a tool to protect resources, or is that past? I think that it's been accepted over the years. There may still be some grumbling, but I think that a, another issue that's come up is that the uh, state has now given towns three options for timber harvesting. And Stephanie, please jump in if I state this. The first is to follow the current state's or current DEP stand- standards, which are in the old ordinances. The second is at a certain date and time to switch to the new standards which are come from the Bureau of Forestry and the third is to abolish the standards altogether and have the main Bureau of Forestry take over all enforcement for timber harvesting in the shoreline and I have to confess I've been in this business for 30 years and I have a master's degree in planning when I read through those standards my eyes glaze over (laughs) so that I initially was recommending to towns that they adopt the new standards but now I think for many towns especially about full-time code enforcement officers it's easier just to let the state do the enforcement and abolish the standards altogether but there's a deadline uh, by which that needs to occur and perhaps Stephanie can explain a little more how that works. Sure. Um, Yeah, the towns have three choices regarding timber harvesting regulation in the shoreland zone. And right now, 80-plus percent of towns are either adopting the new statewide standards or abolishing the standards altogether. We call it repealing timber harvesting standards. Um, And once a certain number of towns with the highest acreage of timber harvesting either adopt the statewide standards or repeal timber harvesting, 
the Department of Conservation will begin the process of taking over those standards. Um, for the towns that adopt the statewide standards, they maintain their authority and enforcement of those standards in timber harvesting in the shoreline zone. So they issue permits, they do investigations, and that kind of thing. But they also have the Bureau of Forestry behind them if they need any technical assistance. For towns that repeal timber harvesting altogether, they do not have the authority or enforcement obligations anymore, and the Department of Conservation would take that over. And I assume that um, when we're talking about timber harvesting, we're talking about the, the variety of activities that go along with that, not only how many trees are cut and, uh, and of what size, but we're talking about road construction, uh, culverts, all of those kinds of things that might impact um, the, the resource. That is correct. Timber harvesting is defined in the shoreland zoning ordinances so that when trees are cleared on a lot that is less than two acres in size in the shoreland zone, that small lot would be considered clearing of re or removal of vegetation for activities other than timber harvesting. So if you have a very small lot in the shoreland zone, you're going to be regulated under a different set of standards than timber harvesting. But you're correct, timber harvesting includes a whole list of activities associated with the actual removal of trees. Great. And it all sounds pretty complicated, so if, <laughs> you're, if people are listening, um, I, I'll ask both Tom and Stephanie to, to uh, list their um, phone numbers or their websites later on in the program so that you can find out more. Um, Tom, so let's get us to the, to the state of, or the, the, the process. The town then adopts the ordinance. Um, they've adopted a, sh a shoreland zoning ordinance that complies. It's as, as least at least as restrictive as the state's um, model ordinance or, or uh, guidance there. Then what happens? Um, we tried to get a code enforcement officer um, on the program with us this morning, but uh, they're all so busy because this is the time when, when people are out and about. So tell us about um, the role of the code enforcement officer at the local level. Okay. Uh, towns, excuse me, landowners who wish to do something in the, proper, in the shoreline zone need to seek a permit. In some cases, that permit is simply from the code enforcement officer. Let's say it's something fairly routine like uh, putting in a, uh, a house in what Stephanie calls the limited residential district. Or building a deck on that house. Building a deck on that house. Uh -huh. If it's something more involved, it, uh, it, would fall under the, uh, it would fall under the planning board permit. But in, for most activities, uh, permits are and, and Tom, is, Tom is looking up these, these ordinances, so we'll give him a minute. Uh, Stephanie, what would you add to that um, while he, Tom's looking that up? Yeah, he's looking up the land use table probably. Yes. Uh, most ordinances have a land use table that indicates the different districts and the different uses and whether those uses are allowed without permits, but they have to follow the standards of the ordinance, are allowed with the code enforcement officer permit, or are allowed with the planning board permit or review, or are prohibited in that district. So let's talk about some of the things that might be allowed in the shoreland zone without a permit. Um, some, some of those things, Tom? Okay. Uh, like... Uh, you, could, forest, you, could, you could go bird watching. Yes, uh, <laughs> bird watching, motorized traffic, uh, forest management activities other than, except for timber harvesting and land management roads, uh, fire prevention activities, wildlife uh, management practices, soil and water conservation practices. Th those are just a few examples. Uh -huh. yep. So there are certain things that are set out in, on, on a piece of paper, and you could go to that piece of paper and find out, well, what can I do without a permit? And the next level is getting a, a, a permit from a code enforcement officer at your town level. And I would say that many towns now have 
their land use ordinances on the town website. Mm. So if you go to your town website, you can find out what is allowed in what zone. If you, have any, if you don't have access to the web or the town's not online, you can go to the town office, talk to the code enforcement officer, and just find out if you need a permit or not. And these people, the, the code enforcement officers, they um, uh, get uh, training and support both from folks at the, the planning commission level and I assume um, from you, Stephanie. That's correct. And, and what, what kinds of skills do code enforcement officers usually come into this work with? Um, what are their qualifications? There's a range of different types of code enforcement officers, or I should say their backgrounds are very varied. Um, many code officers um, have had experience at the town level before. Some have not. Maybe they've been developers or excavators, or maybe they have a totally different background. Um, code enforcement officers are required to get certification um, from the state planning office. Um, with budget cuts, that certification process has become uh, kind of questionable, but um, you know, the, basically they do have some certification for the types of things that they do. There is a certification for shoreland zoning. Um, it's up in the air whether the department will end up taking over that certification process for shoreland zoning. Um, but your code enforcement officer does deal with the ordinances on a daily basis. So that background is definitely a benefit. Um, not every landowner sits down with the town zoning ordinances and reads it cover to cover, but a code enforcement officer hopefully does have a clear idea of what the ordinances contain. So I've been in some town offices recently and, and seen code enforcement officers. Sometimes they have regular hours and they're there and, and they um, people come in and make appointments to, to sit down and talk with them. And, and others, um, you know, you make an appointment and, and the code officer comes just for that reason. Tom, I gathered that not every town has a full-time code enforcement officer. Often these are shared positions among towns or contracts with, with various towns. Yes, that is the case. I mean, some towns, the code enforcement officer may have office hours on uh, Wednesday morning from 8 a.m. until 10 a.m. Hmm. In other cases, uh, maybe the code, or code enforcement officers in one town on Monday, another town on Tuesday, and so forth, and just goes around from town to town. So let's talk about some of the land uses that would, be, um, would require a code enforcement officer uh, permit. Some of those, Tom, you've got that chart in front of you. Okay, like in certain zones, limited residential a uh, code enforcement officer would be required for a uh, a single-family residential permit. And piers, docks, wharves, temporary, that would be a code enforcement officer. Mm -hmm. But I also want to stress that there's also a higher level of review, and that is, I think, Stephanie mentioned a moment ago, planning board mm. for more involved uses. Like, for example, if you were to build a house in the resource protection zone, which is only allowed under very certain very strict circumstances, and if you have special provisions in your ordinance, that requires a planning board approval. Mm -hmm. So, Stephanie, what's what are those kinds of things, and how do, how might you get involved in some of those higher level reviews? Um, planning boards have a variety of duties that they have to do at the town level. Um, some planning boards are busy enough that they meet every month. Some planning boards don't meet but once or twice a year. It all depends on the amount of development and planning that's required for that town. Um, when a planning board is not familiar with the shoreland zoning ordinance, they usually seek the advice from the code enforcement officer who is typically more versed in it because they deal with it on a more regular basis. Um, however, I am also 
sought out for if they have questions about particular provisions, um, um, whether, you know, certain uses could be allowed under certain conditions, um, basically where are the uses allowed and what are the conditions they're allowed under, whether they can approve or deny permits, and what happens when they deny a permit, where does it go from there? Mm. So let's talk about some of the the situations that you've seen, Stephanie, where um, it might have started out as seemingly a conflict or a problem, but there's been a real win-win. Can you tell us some some case stories? And you don't have to list names or t- or towns, but just tell us the the uh, you know what's happened when people have kind of gotten into the details. Sure. Um, Sometimes um, the updates or amendments to a shoreland zoning ordinance can create a lot that is now non-conforming where it was conforming before. Des- describe what that non-conforming means. Sure. There are standards for the lots within a shoreland zone, just like there are for structures and uses. Okay. And when a lot structure or use cannot meet the standards of the ordinance, it is considered a non-conforming structure, lot, or use. Uh-huh. And there's a section in the ordinance that addresses these nonconformances. So like Tom had explained before, zoning is not, no, you can't. It's, yes, you can, but you have to. Okay. Um, and that's what the nonconformance section is about. Um, so the win-win situations I see most often are a person thinks that the amendment to the ordinance prevents them from doing anything. And when they look at the land use table and they look at the nonconformance section of the ordinance, they find out that, in fact, they can build their lot or they can do this use or activity. Um, and so, you know, the landowner gets some use of their property, the common resource is protected, um, and the town can issue a permit and everybody has a win, basically. Great. And, and can you think of um, something very specific that you were involved in that, that kind of illustrates um, what the landowner ended up being able to do? Sure. Um, sometimes landowners, I mean, they understand they need a permit for, you know, reconstruction of a house, for instance. Okay. Um, and they get the permit and they do their reconstruction. And during the reconstruction, they realize they need something different with the structure. Maybe an entranceway, maybe the deck needs to be in a different location. Um, maybe they have an issue with the topography of their land that they weren't expecting. Um, it's always important to check in with the code enforcement officer or the planning board when you need to change a permit, um, the scope of your project. When it changes, the permit might need to be changed or amended as well. Um, so I've dealt with cases where, the, where a landowner may not have gone back to the planning board or the code enforcement officer, believed that they had a permit that would allow them to change the project um, and reconfigure their structure differently than they had actually gotten permitted for. At that point, the code enforcement officer might do a compliance check on the permit. Has the project been in conformance with the standards of the permit and the shoreland zoning ordinance? Comes to find out the structure has been altered um, from the permit that was issued. And at that point, initiates an enforcement case. Um, that can be very scary for a landowner to find out they tried to do what things right the, you know, the first go around and now they're in trouble. Now they've broken the law, and that can be very scary. Um, the best cases are when the code enforcement officers are very, um, they're, they're listeners. They hear out the landowner and what happened. Um, they sit down with the landowner to explain the standards and that the permit needed to be amended, um, and they work out a solution with the landowner. So a success case that I have, um, the landowner wanted to put a deck on the front of the building, 
and that would have encroached in the setback area the planning board had approved for that landowner. So the um, compromise that was made was that the landowner could move the deck to the side of the structure but maintain the same footprint of the deck that they had initially had. Um, So they still have a structure that was not initially permitted, but it also conforms with the standards. So even though it wasn't in the permit, it conforms with the standards of the Shoreland Zoning Ordinance, so it was a compromise of the two parties. Great. We have another caller. Go ahead with your question or comment. Maybe you might want to list your name and and, uh, your your first name and um, the town you're calling from. Yeah, uh, this is Wally from Harrington. And... uh, I've been working with the Shoreland Zoning Ordinance for many years now. As as a landowner or a town official? Well, I all, yeah, both. <laughs> okay. Plus, I'm a land surveyor, so that's okay. right. Yeah. Get into it there. Yeah. But my thing is that all these uh, led, these laws are all based on where the Shoreland Zone is, where the and now they've they've expanded with the wetland definition, and nowhere. A lot of times, it's left up to some guy going out there with a tape. You know, dragging the tape across the shoreland, trying to figure out where the <laughs> 200 feet is. Right. And and even the the code enforcement officers, of course, are usually not trained uh, in measuring, and or or they're not biologists. Uh-huh. And I'm just wondering. And a lot of times, it comes down to where is the the, the uh, normal high water line. Mm. And so I'm just wondering if there is a problem. Who? What is the person that you should get to determine the actual uh, normal high water line. That's a great question. We'll see if uh, first Stephanie and maybe Tom has a comment on that. Stephanie, stay on the line if you would, if you want to ask a follow-up. Stephanie? Yeah, sure. The um, shoreland zone does begin at the shoreline. In the case of a great pond or a river, it's the normal high water line. In the case of a wetland, it would be the upland edge of the wetland. Um, and sometimes these are difficult lines to find on the ground. Um, in other cases, the topography of the shoreline is also makes it difficult to measure that 250 feet because the 250-foot distance is horizontal, um, not along the shore, uh, not along the slope of the land, but actually horizontal, um, as if there was no slope of land. And that is sometimes very difficult for anyone to measure unless they have surveying experience. Um, we always recommend that the landowner hire a surveyor to measure that line if there's a discrepancy between the landowner and the code enforcement officer on where the shoreline zone ends or the setback, if that's the issue. Um, the permitting authority has the final say in where the shoreline zone boundary is, and if the landowner still disputes that, the landowner can appeal it to the Board of Appeals as an administrative appeal that the permitting authority incorrectly stated where the boundary is. Um, and the, it would be on the burden of the landowner to prove where the shoreland zone boundary is and how the ordinance supports their boundary and not that of the permitting authority. Um, and the Board of Appeals would then rule whether the permitting authority was correct or incorrect, and the landowner or the, or the town would then determine whether they need to appeal at the superior court level. Wouldn't it be good if, like, in the ordinance there was, like, a, a soil scientist or a, a biologist, seems like, would be really the, the person to to do the uh, determination? Sure, I mean, maybe Tom... Surveyors can... are great, but, I mean, we're just, like, expert measurers. We're not <laughs> like biologists, you know? Yes, I mean, that is true. And maybe Tom can be more specific about a particular town or towns 
that have put provisions in their ordinance requiring on-the-site determination of these setback and shoreland zoning boundaries. Well, I'm not really aware of any towns that have, but I will say one thing that there's a trade-off that has to be made between accuracy and also keeping the application process as simple as possible mm-hmm. for everybody. Because the more you have to bring in outside experts, the more your permitting costs increase. So that there's, there is a balance there. And I know there have been many frustrated landowners and, and there have been challenges to the shoreline boundaries, but I don't think there's an easy answer. Uh, Wally, what's what's been your experience? Have you had people, um, either clients of yours or um, um, others, who are really frustrated by this, or or have well, they kind of worked it out? Well, usually people have no idea about the ordinance at all. I did find <laughs> that booklet from the DEP, that Shoreland Landowners uh, Handbook. Uh-huh. Shoreland, it's an excellent booklet. I mean, it's very simple to understand. A really great diagrams and things, but. Uh, it depends on where you are, you know, like I'm in Washington County, and <laughs> it's like a whole different can of worms than the can of worms that is in Hancock County, so yeah, it really depends, and I, it's just, to me, it's just, because I'm sort of like, you know, surveyors are kind of like, they're like scientists, sort of, you know, they're like, we're into accuracy and stuff like that, and it's sort of frustrating to me that it's just so loose, mm. the, the whole concept, and uh well, the, I guess, it keeps uh, changing, too. That's right. another weird thing. And, and we said earlier in the program that the 75-foot or the 250-foot is a kind of a, a, a compromise, uh, politics and science coming together. And so that's those the, the science or the accuracy and politics come together at the state uh, at the town level as well. So I just wish the GIS could somehow... Uh, <laughs> Magic. Be, be, well, it could be. I mean, you know, as it gets better and better, uh-huh. it seems like if there was more uh, accuracy in the uh, actual... GIS layers that then somehow we could then translate those onto the ground. Yeah, so that but what it does take that on the ground um, ground truthing. Well, you got to have that. Right, yeah. right. Well, Wally, thanks so okay, much for thanks. your call this morning. Um, calling from um, Washington County, um, we've got time perhaps for one more call. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. As we talk about protecting water and wetlands through shoreland zoning, um, uh, Stephanie uh, Wally mentioned a, an excellent publication. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, thank you for that opening. Uh, we do also provide landowners with assistance with shoreland zoning as well as the town officials. And the way we do this is through our handbook for landowners. And the handbook has been revised for the new set of guidelines that municipalities use to form their ordinances. The handbook is great. It has pictures, diagrams, it's in layman's terms, so landowners can get an understanding of what the provisions of their ordinance means. Um, It should be noted that the handbook does not replace the ordinance. Um, The handbook contains provisions that are optional for towns to adopt. Um, So it may contain provisions that your town ordinance does not have. Tom, anything to add in terms of resources for landowners? Well, I think the handbook is very important. The other, the other resource really is just, as I said before, the town ordinances or an informal chat with the code enforcement officer. Sometimes something that can, can seem very intimidating once you sit down and talk to somebody for five or ten minutes uh, is really quite simple. 
Great. Well, we've come a long way both on this program as we talk with Tom Martin of the Hancock County Planning Commission and Stephanie McLacken of the uh, Department of Environmental Protection. And we've come a long way in terms of, of protecting our water resources. Um, Stephanie mentioned earlier that we're moving towards um, uh, taking care of, of soil particles, and uh, that's a certainly improvement than um, uh, raw sewage. Um, Stephanie, where do you think all this is going uh, further? Um, it, as Wally suggested, is science and uh, more accuracy in mapping and ground truthing, is that the, is that the way forward? I think so. I think it would help um, us in the long run with the overall purposes of the shoreline zoning ordinance um, if we're able to use science to be more accurate about where these boundaries and habitat areas and so forth are actually on the ground. Um, we changed the definition of the coastal wetland before we used um, the debris lines associated with a tide as a mark for where the upland edge of the coastal wetland might be. Obviously, debris lines can change, you know, by different tide levels, um, different storm surges, and so forth. Um, and now we reference the um, NOAA, what is that, National, National Geographic Atmospheric Administration. Yes. We reference their elevation um, data for that, so surveyors can take a GPS location of the elevation at the site to determine where the upland edge of the coastal wetland is. And and this is changing, and certainly in exactly. southern Maine, um, where beaches are and where wetlands uh, begin and um, so on, that's all changing because um, the climate is um, changing, and therefore um, there's migration of, of these, these uh, lines, as you described them. That is correct. So we really do have to have on-the-ground kind of um, uh, look at what the vegetation is doing, what the soil types are. All of those things are part of the kind of the scientific record. Yep. Well, Tom, um, give us your um, background uh, contact information so if folks um, want to contact the Hancock County uh, Planning Commission and, and just reference other um, uh, planning commissions. Well, uh our phone number is 667-7131. Our website is www.hcpcme.org. And each of the other counties, or in some cases counties combined, are served by regional planning commissions. I think in uh, your listening area here, it would be Washington County Council of Governments in Callis, Midcoast Regional Planning in Rockland, uh, the... Uh, Eastern Maine Development Corporation, Penobscot Valley Council of Governments in Penobscot and Piscataquis County. Do you go as far as Kennebec County? Sometimes, yes. Kennebec Valley Council of Governments in Fairfield. Great. So again, um, those local resources, starting with your town, um, the code enforcement officer, um, the regional planning commissions, and, and how about you, Stephanie? How would people get in touch with DEP? Uh, my direct line is 207-941-4116. I also have a state email, which is stephanie.mcclagan at maine.gov, and I can be found on the DEP's website as well, which is www.maine.gov backslash DEP, and you'll just have to find your way to the Shoreland Zoning <laughs> page from there. Great. Well, thanks so much for being with us, uh, to you and Tom. We've come to that time well, when... thank you. It's been a pleasure. Great. 
This is a time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration began in 1990 with WERU and continues with your support. And I should mention that our Funathon starts tomorrow. Um, all of us who are listening are parts uh, are part of this wonderful experiment called community radio. Experiment isn't over yet. We haven't figured it all out, but we do know that your support is key to keeping us on the air. So I hope when you have the opportunity, you'll either call and make a pledge or go to our website and, and make that pledge of support. Um, join us at uh, from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks once again to our guests. Uh, Tom Martin was here uh, from the Hancock County Planning Commission. Um, he, he was here in the studio. Stephanie McLachlan was with, uh, is with the Maine Department of Environmental Protection in Bangor. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions and experience. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.